in the seven churches, we're in chapter 3, verse 1. I'll read to you and we'll dive in. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They are the, the, ones who, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my, my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So a weekly reminder that, that there's seven churches, seven actual historical churches. They existed in what is now Turkey. Uh, they were relatively close to where uh, where John uh, was exiled. This was sent as a as a um, as a cyclical letter. It, it, it went through the the churches. These are the churches closest uh, to where would have received those letters, even though it probably would have been uh, passed on after that. Though they are seven historical churches, the number seven is is intentional. Seven in Revelation, as we're going to see after we leave the the uh, this this first part of Revelation, and we get into more of the use of numbers. The number seven is the number of perfection, right? It is the number of, of completeness, and so this is the complete number of churches. They're the, the perfect number of churches. The, the, the heart of, uh, of this is that it is written to these churches in this time to say what it needs to say to them, but also it is written to all churches in all time so that all the churches might hear, so that the admonition at the end uh, in verse 6, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, might be heard by all churches in all time, and that includes us. So going back to verse 1, uh, and, the, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, I remind you uh, that these are the words of Jesus, Jesus himself speaking, uh, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven spirits of God, we talked about this earlier in Revelation, the seven spirits uh, uh, or, or another way to state that, the sevenfold spirit, it's a, it's a reference from uh, Zechariah. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. So this is the words of him who has the Holy Spirit of God and to the seven stars. The stars representation, well, in this case, of, of the messengers or the angels uh, of the church. And the idea is simply this, is that Jesus is coming at them and he has the Holy Spirit with him and he's accompanied by the, by the angels um, the messengers to the church and the angels who who uh, who do the job of protecting and keeping the church are also with him uh, at at this time and so he reminds them of who he is and what he does there's going to be a reason we'll talk about it in a minute but he wants to remind them of his power his sovereignty uh, who he is and then he says in uh, uh, he says as we continue, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And so the first thing he does is he calls them out. This is unusual because only, of the two, only two of the churches uh, of the seven are addressed this way. The other five he says something good about, right? Like, uh, like managers are taught. If you've ever had a class in, in management, you know, say so many positive things before you say anything negative. John is using, uh, or Jesus through John, is employing that methodology with the other churches, save one other. He says something positive about them. You do this well. You do this well. This is good about you. 
But he does not do that here. The church at Sardis has nothing to be uh, uh, commendated for. There is no commendation. There is nothing positive said. He jumps right in. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. This is a, is a case where we see again and again where the church in the city mirrors the, the city almost exactly. Sardis used to be a world-class city. It's one of the oldest, uh, uh, oldest cities uh, in, in, in the world. It had dated, uh, even in their own time, it was one of the oldest cities in, in the world. It, dated to, it could be dated to at least 1200 BC. So it had existed, it had, it had been there, it, it had established its place, as an ancient city. It also claimed to be the, the, uh, the birthplace of, of the technique for dyeing wool. And so it was famous for its techniques of dyeing wool in rich purples, rich reds. This was, um, this was an amazing thing in, in its own time. It was set up in, in, in an amazing place. It was high on a hill. The hills made it very hard uh, for it to be attacked. In ancient cities, when you were expecting conquest, you wanted a good location. This was a great location. It exists at the top of of a hill. It is fortified. It is the kind of city that would be hard, hard to attack, hard to come against. It had great wealth. It had great reputation. It had great history. That's the city of Sardis. And so they had been leaning in the city of Sardis on, on their reputation. And yet the reality was, even though they had the greatest location in the world, even though they should have been an impregnable force, what Sardis became famous for was twice being conquered without even knowing it was going to happen. So what happened is that they thought they were in the perfect position. They, they were just sort of watching, sort of paying attention. Uh, and when they weren't paying attention, they would get attacked. And they had been twice the victim of an amazing conquest while they weren't, while they weren't looking. Uh, in both cases, the conquests were began by someone who scaled up the outside of a cliff, got inside the city, opened the gates to the city while the people weren't watching. The armies came in. They took over the whole city before they knew what had happened. And so... Sardis, in, in its own mind, is this great city but, and, and has a reputation for being great. But in reality, all kinds of their, their, their greatness was overestimated. They were great only on paper. They're like, we can't be attacked. We're rich. We're this. No one can get at us. And yet, twice in their, in, in their history, um, not including a, a bunch of minor attacks, they had major attacks where the whole city is sieged and, and taken over because they simply weren't, weren't paying attention. And so the church is very, very similar. The church there says, well, we're one of the oldest churches. We're one of the most worshipful churches, whatever, whatever kind of bragging the church in that time might have done. The church had a reputation for being very alive. It had a reputation for being a, a, a great church. I don't know if this means that, that they had uh, uh, the best worship places. I don't know what that means in, in, in their context. All we know is that the church had this reputation for doing great things, and yet Jesus comes to him and says, I've heard your reputation about doing great things, but I haven't seen any of that. You're kind of a paper church that lives in a paper city. And when I say paper, like you ever write down things that you write it down, uh, maybe this is um, only us, those of us who are Lions fans, but if you're a Lions fan, what you do every year uh, about this time, so every year from like when the season ends, uh, just before the playoffs, usually, uh, when the season ends... <laughs> When the NFL season ends just before the playoffs, uh, until training camp opens, well, until training camp ends, usually, um, 
you, you get very excited about what the Lions are going to do because you read in the paper about all the moves they're making and all the new people they drafted and all of the exciting things that happen. And the writers write about how good they look in practice. And if, you have, and if it gets really built up, what will happen is that the Lions will go 4-0 in the, in the preseason. You'll be like, this is our year. We went 4-0 and in the preseason. Do you know what happened one time when the Lions went 4-0 and in the preseason? They set the record as the only team to ever go 0 16 in the regular season. I'll be honest with you, I love the Lions very, very much. Perhaps more than I should. There is nothing worse to, to me, even still, than the fact that the Lions went 0-16. I routinely root for other terrible teams to go 0-16, just to assuage my own pain at the Lions having gone 0-16. But we are in the midst of this now, which means I do read daily. I go to MLive.com, go to the Lions part, and read daily about the improvements that we're making. And so right now, everything looks good on paper, right? They're going to be better this season. A logical person might point out that Hall of Famer Calvin Johnson, the best player on our offense, retired. But it says on paper what the newspaper guys are saying is now defenses won't focus on Calvin Johnson and give us weird defenses. We'll know what we're seeing. And so our offense might be even better after losing Hall of Famer Calvin Johnson. Now, some of you don't know football and you don't care about that. It's okay. It's not my point. My point is simply I read about the Lions every day and they look good on paper. That's, that's this city and that's this church, right? Lots is written, lots of talk. And yet God looks at them and goes, Jesus looks at them and says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That's a rough way to start out. Like, he didn't ease into, his, um, into it. Like, maybe, like, he didn't compliment him, but he could have started with a minor critique, and he doesn't. He goes, you're dead. Understand this, church. You're dead. And then he says, wake up. Wake up is a play on words, and again, he's talking about how this church mirrors the city. The city has twice been sieged and taken over because they weren't awake and they weren't paying attention. Wake up, um, uh, another way to translate that is be watchful. Look, look around, be aware. They weren't aware, and twice they sieged the city. The same with the church. He's, he's playing on words and saying, you're just like the city you live in. You're being sieged by evil. You're being sieged by all kinds of distractions. You're being sieged by the culture. You're being sieged by idolatry. You're being sieged by immorality. But you don't even know that it happens because you're not watching. Wake up, church. Wake up. And it says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Says, you need to wake up because you are dying. You're about there. You are, you are on your, your deathbed. You are on life support and you're about to go. But there's a little bit of a spark of life there. And so wake up and, and strengthen that because even that's about to die. You're about to go from, from, from being, uh, being almost completely dead to being completely dead. But there's this remnant. Strengthen the remnant of what's there. Strengthen what remains. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, when we encounter works in, in, in Revelation, uh, it, it includes a lot of, lot of things. The, the common works of the church, service, love, uh, peacemaking, all of the, the common works of the church, their love towards each other, uh, their love towards the outside. But when we encounter works, what's being predominantly referred to is the high priestly works of the church, the, the role of the church as, 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 a, as a priest in, um, 
in the in the culture meaning that the role of the church was to be a mediator between God and man or to point them to the true high priest was to point them to Jesus so that peace might be made between between the world and 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 the the king between the world and God the the church has a priestly role it was the role of the church to make known uh who was the true king? Who was the true Lord? It was the role of the church to speak the name of Jesus. It was the role of the church to live out Jesus and communicate how he could, he is Lord and King and how he could save people. And so when works happen, when a church is, church is said, you don't have works, it is referring to what we might call their witness. Their collective witness doesn't exist. They've started to exist for themselves only. They come, they meet... Uh, and they don't really do much else, right? We, we don't think of, of, of that, in, and, and if you're at Crossings, because we do talk about evangelism, out, or this sort of thing, that might seem foreign, but honestly, there's churches out there that, that believe uh, that evangelism or, or making known to the world the great works of Christ is not their responsibility. Uh, I told you before that I grew up in one that, that had with their elders and, and their, their deacons, uh, or their deacons and their pastors, they didn't have elders. Uh, they had discussions and arguments regularly about whether it was the role of the church to do evangelism. And their, their, um, their answer at that time was, was predominantly no, that it was not the work of the church to do evangelism. Uh, after that, I went to work for a church called Westwood. We shared a building with another church in, there, in our building. We were a young church plant. We were doing all kinds of outreach and all kinds of things, and the newspaper showed up to do a story about this interesting situation where, where this older church that existed and this younger church were in one, one building, um, and, and they showed up to do this interview, and they interviewed uh, Tom Bradley, who some of you know and who I, I worked under at that time as his associate pastor and they interviewed him and Tom just told stories about the kinds of things that Westwood at that time was doing for, for, for Christ and doing for the community, all the kinds of outreach and stuff that, that it was doing and then they turned to, to the pastor of that church that existed and said, oh and what do you do? And he said, honestly this is a direct quote that they printed in the newspaper he said, we meet, we worship, we don't really do much One would question if the third one is true, then whether the second can be true, right? We talked about this before, about how Christ promises to come and remove the, the, the lampstand of, of the church that has no works. And in fact, this one here is in danger of having its lampstand removed, essentially because they apparently meet, they worship, but they don't do much. So the works are all those, those kinds of things uh, that that we would view as common uh, to the life of a believer, both internally but focusing greatly on the external work of of the church and culture, which means in these in these pagan cultures like like this would have been the church in uh, in Sardis would have been again in a pagan culture. They had grand temples to uh, to many false gods. They had patron gods. They had all of this that that existed there. The role of the church then was to resist that happening, what was happening in the culture, and live in a countercultural way and express the goodness of Jesus anytime they were asked. It was probably not... Sometimes we think uh, in terms of, of evangelism and in terms of works and in terms of that role as, um, as overt uh, activity-driven outreach. So uh, in... 
in, in our time, uh, our culture, going back a, a few years in church plants, typically what we would do, we'd do a couple different things. Uh, we might do uh, a pig roast, and we might do a 10,000-person mailer and invite everybody to church into the pig roast and hope that people showed up so that they might hear the good news about, about Jesus. Other churches have done uh, big things. I have no real comment on that except for to say that in this culture, they probably were not employing whatever means of, of, of public media they had available to them to make Jesus known, and they were not being called to. Rather, what was happening was the culture was completely involved with the worship of false gods. The, the culture was, it was continually giving in to the sexual immorality and the other forms of immorality that was going on in the culture. And this church has no works, not because they failed to, to have a media campaign and invite people into their church, but rather because they are synchronistically becoming just like the culture, meaning that they are not different from the culture, they don't stand out from the culture, that when you look at the actual works of the church of Sardis, where there was sexual immorality in the culture, it must have been happening in the church too. Where there was false idol worship in the culture, there must have been some form of that in the, in the church too. And so when the culture went to look at what was different or what set apart the church in Sardis, the church had a reputation, but that reputation apparently was not that they knew and loved a God who was different than the God of the culture, right? And so I, I make that distinction because I feel like we're moving into a post-Christian era in our, in our culture. We're moving into a place where our culture increasingly and daily worships uh, things other than Jesus Christ. Um, it used to be in, in America that you could go to a person and, and functionally evangelize them by saying, you need to follow God, and if they were to come to God, they would know which God you were referring to, they would know which church they needed to go to, there might have been different denominational names, but the God that they needed to follow would have been the God who had a name, and that name was Jesus, they, it would have been our God, and yet we increasingly live in a culture that is that is is uh, not only unchurched, but it, it is um, it is post-Christian, or in some cases pre-Christian, meaning that because of high immigration, people have immigrated to our to our country, and they have no background in Christianity. Their backgrounds in Islam, their backgrounds in Hinduism, their their background might be in um, in in Spiritism. It might be in ancestor worship. It might be in Buddhism. Where if you're talking Godwin Heights, where 48 different languages are spoken in the high school, many of those languages represent countries where Christ has not in any sort of modern time been named as, as Lord. And so they are pre-Christian. If you're talking about people who live multiple generations in America, there are many post-Christians. In other words, their family, if you go back far enough, might have had some connection to Jesus Christ, but their great-great-grandparents had no connection to Jesus Christ. Their great-grandparents had no connection to Jesus Christ. Their grandparents had no connection to Jesus Christ. Their parents had no connection to Jesus Christ. And now the children have no connection to Jesus Christ. And so the way evangelism used to happen or the way things used to happen, even uh, 15 years ago when I started out in, in church planting, we could go to a person 
and, and say to them, you need to come back to church. We could talk about how we had a church that was different. We could talk about how we had a church that was not boring, a church where you didn't have to dress up, all these kinds of things that we used to do. And you would find people whom this appealed to because they were recently de-churched. They were the de-churched. What is happening in America now, though, is that the number of de-churched is exceeded by the number of never-churched, who are post-Christian Americans or immigrant people who were pre-Christian. In other words, they have no background in a historical Judeo-Christian thought process. So the way in which you speak to them, the way in which you evangelize them, is different than what we used to do when we were calling people who had, who had essentially gone apostate from our faith or people who had walked away from our faith. We called them back to the faith. This is not a call back to the faith. And so I say all of that to say that the church at Sardis did not do evangelism probably through mass mailers. You need to come to the church at Sardis. It's church like you've never seen before, right? Uh, church where you can feel casual and where you're, uh, and you don't have to wear your finest camel skins. Uh, Sardis, where our pastor rides in on a chariot, and we have a performing clown, right? These are, and I, I'm making light, but these are, these are the kinds of things that when I started 15 years ago that we, we considered doing. I probably have done or considered done uh, doing all of those things, especially when I was at Westwood, which is a more suburban neighborhood where those sorts of things still work. But the fun thing about urban neighborhoods, uh, using fun in an interesting way, is that urban neighborhoods get to where the culture is going 10 years early. And so Godwin Heights, we just discovered when we moved here has been post-Christian and pre-Christian for a very long time. What we're dealing with here is predominantly third generation unchurched people or never church people from, from other nations. And so at Sardis, they couldn't send out a mailing. We found the same thing at Crosswinds, but we'll get to that application. And at Sardis, so how did they live out their works in Sardis? The way they lived out the, their works was to live culturally different than the surrounding the surrounding area. They had to be different. In other words, they had to live out personal piety, personal holiness. They had to refuse to worship false gods. The, there's a big issue in, the, in these, these churches here because um, there's food sacrificed to idols, and that food that's been sacrificed to idols is constantly being offered to the believers, and, and some of the people are, are saying, it's no big deal. Go ahead and eat food sacrificed to idols, and, and, and Jesus is coming along saying, don't you can't do that because when the people see that, they're getting confused. They don't know that there's a fundamental difference between the church of Jesus Christ and the false gods of the temples that, that surround it. You can't get into bed with false idols. You can't, you can't act and flirt with, with, with the false idols and the false gods and have people expect, and expect people to know the true God of, of Scripture. And so the church at, at Sardis, their works is that they're, they're, they're probably not living in a way that is consistently holy. They're probably flirting with sexual immorality. They're probably flirting with idolatry. They're, they're probably flirting with all kinds of things, and yet they're in the general culture in the day-to-day, -day, and the people in the, in the culture in the day do not see any fundamental difference between the members of the church at Sardis and the members of the temple of Artemis. And the problem is, is that they have no witness then. They have functionally, because of their lack of holiness, their lack of Christ following in a true way, they have cut themselves off from any witness and Jesus says I've looked at you and your works aren't complete in other words you might show up 
to the first church of Sardis on a Sunday morning. You might be in the first church of Sardis on a Sunday morning. You might sing the songs at the first church of Sardis on a Sunday morning. You might listen to whoever the pastor was over the first church of Sardis on a Sunday morning. You might have listened to him, but you went out and in your daily life, you acted as though you worshiped not the Jesus that was talked about at the first church of Sardis, but you acted like you worshiped Artemis, the God who was the patron. Uh, uh, the patron god uh, of Sardis or one of the other gods in the various temples. You acted just like they did. You might have heard about Jesus, but God was not God over your sexuality. You might have heard about Jesus, but God was not God over your pocketbook. You might have heard about Jesus, but God was not God over the kinds of things that you ate, the kinds of entertainment you consumed, and all of these sorts of things. And the problem then was that when the culture looked at Sardis, they had a reputation. You know why they probably had a good reputation? Is because everybody in every culture loves a church that never confronts anything about any culture, right? The way in which the church at Sardis lived was no confrontation to the culture. They lived just like the culture. So yeah, they have a good reputation. Nobody dislikes them. The church that stands up the church that, that lives out the truth, two things happen. When a church decides to stand up and live counter to the culture, live in a way that is consistent with the holiness we're called to in Scripture, to sometimes make willing sacrifices of things that are not sinful for us, but not profitable for us in our witness. When we do those sorts of, sorts of things, what happens then is that other people see those and they can, one of two things happen. One is they recognize that, we, that our life of holiness is bringing us joy and peace and, and they, they, they become jealous and they want our God and they become Christians. That's witness. But the other thing that happens, and this is, it talks about this in, in 2 Corinthians, to one group, it's a fragrance that brings life, but to the other, it, it, it's, it's a fragrance that brings death. And so a whole other group sees us living out our faith and rather than coming to our Jesus, they become angry with us. They become disgusted with us. They, they become reviled by us and they look at us and go, those people do that. This is why the culture, they feel, will call us, they're the ju judgmental ones. We're the angry ones were the confrontational ones because when a person lives out what scripture teaches and they live out consistently I'm not talking about being an angry judgmental jerky person sometimes people think they're being persecuted and all that's really happening is they're a jerk and no one likes them I'm not talking about that what I'm suggesting is this is that even when you live out in a perfectly holy a perfectly loving a perfectly kind way the teachings of holiness in scripture when you live out how it is different to be a Jesus follower, there are two things that can happen. One is people will come to Christ, and the other is that they will be reviled by Christ because they will choose their idols over, over Jesus. But what does not happen, typically, is what happens here is that they are, they are culturally, and they're getting a great name, People love them because they don't confront anything. The problem is no one's coming to Jesus because they have no consistent works, right? He's seen their works. They're not complete. They might be showing up to church. They might be singing on a Sunday. They might be doing those kinds of things. But when it comes to living out the holiness and the works of Christ in the general culture, there's no one coming to Jesus because they don't know that they have to because the works of this church is incomplete. They're not living out Jesus in a way that becomes a witness. I found your works to not be complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So remember what you have seen and heard. 
What have they seen and heard? They, they, they have seen Christ preached. They, they have heard about Christ resurrected. They have heard the goodness of his, of his works. They need to remember that. They need to remember whose they are. They need to remember who they follow. They need to remember the teaching of, of Scripture in as much as they had it. They had the apostolic teaching and the apostolic tradition at this time. They had leaders that God had, had given them. Remember what you have been taught and keep it. You need to do this. Remember then what you have received and what you have heard. My worry in our generation as we become rapidly, uh, rapidly unchurched in, in our culture, as our culture does all kinds of things, my worry sometimes for those of us who are not in high church situations, for those of us who did not um, hold on to the vestiges of, of fundamentalism, and we were right to throw off those, those shackles. But my worry sometimes is that when we routinely preach the grace of God to you, salvation by grace alone, salvation through God alone, salvation uh, 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 predicated on the work of Christ alone, given to you by Christ alone, by his sovereign choice alone, my worry is that when you hear that grace preached to you, that, that you will never, uh, you never accept and internalize it to the point that you realize that when that grace takes you over, it changes you. That grace transforms you. We, we, we fail to realize that, that, that um, in Romans chapter 8, it says, those whom Christ foreknew, he, he, he all, those whom Christ called, he also foreknew. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his son. And my worry is, is that we in this younger generation who we love, we want people to know Jesus. I believe that we do. We, we work to make people know Jesus. We care about the cause of Christ. My worry about us sometimes is that our personal holiness does not fall in line with the fact that we have been called by Jesus, that we have been chosen by Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit's at work in transforming us into the image of Jesus. And, and my worry then sometimes about us is about the things that we do and the things that we say and the ways that we act because we're like, woohoo, we throw off the shackles of fundamentalism. We've thrown off the shackles of moralism. I'm saved by Christ alone, to which I am screaming with all my heart, amen. You have never done, nor will you ever do a single thing that would make you acceptable to the Lord Jesus Christ. That work is done by him and him alone. But here's the reality is that when he saves you, he imparts to you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is in the business of conforming you to the image of the Son. And so my worry about us sometimes is that in our media choices and the things we watch and the things we say and the things we do and the way that we act that we feel an extreme freedom in Christ that we should not feel as freedom we should feel it instead as placing a yoke back around our neck we have been given freedom in Christ and yet I watch some of the things we do I watch some of the things we say I watch the way we behave I watch how we are when we're not when we're around unbelievers and we start to act just like that unbeliever in the name of reaching them for Christ you liars that's a lie. Don't you get it? That if you're with an unbeliever and you're acting just like that unbeliever, you're talking like he talks, you're joking sexually like he jokes, you're swearing like he swears, you're going to the movies that he goes to that you know are not pleasing to Christ, and you're claiming you're doing it for a cause of witness, you're a liar. And that's what's being called out here. You're just a fake dead Christian. That's what Jesus is saying. That is not right. It's not acceptable, and I worry for us. I will never, ever, ever preach to you moralism. 
Moralism will never save you. Jesus does. But the fact of the matter is this. When Jesus saves you, he also transforms you and he conforms you to the image of the Son. And if you are a Jesus follower and you spend regular time with people who don't know Jesus, for goodness sakes, act like you do. That is the work that you're called to. And if that person doesn't want to hang out with you because you act too much like Jesus, then that is the work of Jesus as well. And you give them over to that. But you do not enter into their sin in a hope of bringing them closer to your Christ. It doesn't work like that. That's a lie. He says it again. He's going to call him out. He, Jesus, uh, well, here's, here's the thing I like as kind of a sarcastic person. Jesus is a little sarcastic when he talks. He did it with the Pharisees, and he's, he's messing with them again here. So he told him to wake up once already, which meant be watchful, because he's like, hey, remember you and your silly city that got attacked and taken over twice because you weren't paying attention? He's going to say, wake up again. And it's intentional. He's reminding them who they are. He's like, wake up. If you will not wake up, if you will not wake up, up. He's like, be watchful. Why are you not watching? You know what you've been called to. You know. You know. You know. What, what's up with you? And he says, wake up. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That's a declaration of judgment against people who would claim the name of Jesus and not live anything like him. That's a declaration of judgment against people who would claim to walk with Jesus but not walk anywhere near him. That's a declaration of judgment against people who, who, would, who would wear the name Christian but have none of following Christ in them. That's a declaration. I will come against you. He's talking to those people at Sardis who are like, yes, we follow Jesus, and then they act all week every week like they don't follow Jesus. He's talking to all the Sunday people. He's talking to all the people whose lives are so much like the world that the world cannot ever ask, hey, what's different about you? Because the answer is nothing. And it makes Christianity nothing but a joke, nothing but an add-on. Listen, if, if you live just like the world, why would your friend ask what's different about you? He wouldn't. And if you live just like the world, but you claim to be a Christian, do you know what your friend thinks Christianity is? A fun little religion that you do on Sundays. And your friend is smart enough to know that there's no power in that fun little religion and he's smart enough to know that if all it is is a fun little religion that you talk about but never practice he is just as well to sleep in on Sunday morning as he is to go and hear about this Jesus dude with you because that Jesus has made no impact in your life why would he make any impact in his Jesus decides says I won't tolerate it he says I will come to you like a thief in the night like a thief this is a it's a reference that's made several times. There's a reference to, uh, in, in Matthew, there's a reference ever, uh, ever place. This is not the, um, uh, in view here, probably not the, the second coming at the end of time, but rather a coming in judgment, where Jesus visits the people in, in judgment. I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour. I will come against you. That's, that's the warning. You need to hear that, that if you claim the name of Jesus, but you don't live the life of Jesus, that Jesus looks at you and he looks at our church, right? He says, I'll come against you. If that's who you are, I'll come against you. And, and that coming is a coming in judgment. I want you to soak in that for a minute. I want you to marinate in that for a minute. He'll come against you like a thief. You won't know the time, but he'll come. Then he says in verse four, yet... 
Yeah, listen, sometimes the transition between verses, those, those first words are the most beautiful thing ever, right? Because you should sit under a moment of, of worry and a moment of fear and a moment of like, uh, when you hear, he's coming, he'll come in judgment like a thief. But the yet, the yet becomes a moment of hope and it's gonna transition to hope from here on. He says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. He uses names to say they're individuals, there's people that he knows. We do not serve a disconnected God who doesn't know who we are. We do not serve a bureaucratic organization that has, has millions and we're just one of a number as you might see in some TV version of heaven. But rather we serve a God who is real, who is true, who lived and died. We serve a God who gave his son, poured out his, his wrath on his son so that we might be saved. The son went to a grave, walked out of a grave so that he could save you and in saving you he knows you and he knows you by name that's going back to Romans says those whom he foreknew he knows you he knows your name there are a few names in Sardis meaning there's individuals I know them by name I know them intimately I'm the God of the universe I am the God who meets out judgment I am the God who brings the angels by my side I am the God with the sevenfold Holy Spirit I am that God but yet I know your name There are still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, right? So they're white. They get the white garments and they're not soiled them. What's the, what's the reference? It's to the people who involve themselves in, in, in idol worship. It's to the people who have involved themselves in, in, in sexual immorality. It's the people who involve themselves in all of these sorts of things. Their garments have been soiled. He says, yet there's a few who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. I want to put a parenthesis here and say this, is that I think we can assume on the basis of the rest of Scripture, when it says that they have not soiled their garments, it does not mean that they've never participated in things that would soil their garments. But I think we can assume that this means that these are the people who are repentant and realize that they need to depend on Jesus for the cleanliness of even their garments. And so there's a big difference between people who sin and run to Jesus in repentance and say, Jesus, I messed up, please and encountering there a Jesus who knows their name and says, yes, come. So when the, soil, the people of the unsoiled garments are not people who necessarily, if you were to meet out or, or count out how many sins they'd committed in their life versus the other people, how many sins they committed in their life, it's not that the scale would, go, would, would be lighter on the side of the people not soiled their garments, but rather I think we can assume that these are the ones who are truly sorry and repentant for the sins that they've committed. They've rushed to Jesus. They've had their, their garments cleaned and they're walking with him. And if they do fall into a moment that might soil the garments, they walk, they run back to Jesus who is the ultimate cleanser of all the garments everywhere. He is the one who allows them to walk in white. And so I don't want us to get to this idea that, that, that the expectation is then that to walk close to Jesus is a workspace system and if you can't do the works then if you can't then Jesus won't love you as much everything is by grace and, and through grace and so these people who have not soiled their garments I am sure are the people who rushed to Jesus confessing their sins being cleansed by Jesus and in the joy of the grace attempting and striving to walk with him knowing that they don't earn anything but understanding in the goodness of grace that sin is not worthwhile when you're in the presence of a great God. These are the people who have discovered that Jesus is of greater worth than, than their sin. So it's not that they, they never fall. 
it's that they rush back. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. See, I say again, the word worthiness suggests to me that the worthiness is not endemic or internal to them, right? These are not the people who've, who've never sinned, who tried harder. They're not the top 10% of the class. This is not some sort of spiritual national honor society where they got a recommendation from two apostles and then Jesus decided who to let in. This is not that, but rather these are the people who are worthy and we know that there is a worthy one in scripture. His name is Jesus. And so this worthiness must have come through him. And so my, my assumption here based on, on the totality of, of scripture and the teaching of scripture that these are the people who rush to Jesus even when they fall, they go to Jesus. They don't turn their hearts to another God. These are the people who realize that Jesus and Jesus alone is their God. And so they do not get involved in worshiping false gods because in their brokenness and their own sinfulness, they know there's only hope in one. He's the one who clothes in white. He's the one who, who makes people worthy on the basis of his, of his own sacrifice. Uh, the one who conquers... The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Again, I would just like to point out this on the totality of the teaching of Scripture, on the further teaching of Revelation, we know this, that those who are in Christ are the ones who conquer. We are the ones who overcome. We do win. At the end of the day, Jesus wins history. He has won history at the cross. We're living out and waiting for a coronation so that those of us who are in him, those of us who have Christ in us, those of us transformed by the Holy Spirit, our conquering is not in doubt. If you are in Christ, your conquering is not in doubt. So he's essentially saying, those of you who are in me, your conquerors, you will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That can be heard if you read it in a vacuum. You read it like that, as if Jesus is going to come and he's going to declare some people unsaved, that he's going to come to people who he has made worthy by his blood and declare them because of some, some new action unworthy. That is not the teaching of Scripture, and so it is best to read this not as a threat, but as a promise to conquerors. This is a promise to those who are in Jesus. This is a promise to those who do walk with him. This is a promise to those who have been made worthy. This is a promise to those who are clothed in white. This is a promise to all those who, taking their sinfulness, have walked to the cross, laid their sin at the foot of the cross, and been taken into the arms of Jesus, and their sin destroyed, nailed to the cross, dead forever. This is a promise to all who have been made alive in him. The promise is this. You are a conqueror, and Jesus will never blot your name out of the book of life. Your salvation is sure. I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. You have an advocate. You have an advocate. He will confess your name. In other words, he'll say, that's my child. That's the one that I love. That's the one that I've saved. I died for this one, and this one is mine. He will confess your name. And then it says, let all who have ears to hear, let all who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. May we hear what the Spirit says to us. Let's hear it. May we not be people who, who, who Christ has rescued, who Christ has died for, who Christ has, has, has applied his blood to, who Christ has, has, has redeemed, who Christ has regenerated. May we, being regenerated, always walk in sanctification, being made more like him. May we never go, well, I'm saved, and Jesus loves me, so I'm going to do whatever I want. 
May we never walk back into the worship of false things. May we never walk back into a way of doing sinful things. And especially as it relates to our public witness, may we realize that a call to holiness is is a basic part of the call to Jesus. When you've been called to Jesus and you've been redeemed by him, you now walk as one set apart for him. May we walk in that way and never ever live a lie that essentially says to those around us, yeah, I follow Jesus, but there's really no difference between you and me. It's just a religious thing. This is not just a religious thing. May God look at us and may he see our works and may he not judge them incomplete, but may he see us, yes, truly loving our friends who don't believe, truly loving those who don't know him, truly caring for them, going to every length and every way to, to, to make known the goodness of Christ to them, but may he never see us living just like them in an attempt to reach them because it does not work and that is what is condemned in this passage. You must live like Jesus, if you want your friends, your countrymen, your, your family, the people at your job, to ask, what's different about you? Why do you live like that? The answer should be Jesus. But for the answer to be Jesus, your life needs to scream Jesus. And my fear is that a lot of our lives don't scream Jesus, except for when we're in church on Sunday. And that smacks to the world is just rank hypocrisy or a waste of time. May we never live that lie. May we be conquerors. If you're in Christ, you're a conqueror. May we be overcomers. May we be clothed in white. And may we long for the day when the final marriage supper of the Lamb happens in the church in its fullness, in its perfection, in its goodness, falls into the arms of the Savior and lives sinless evermore. That day is coming, but in this time, may we be set apart and holy, be an overcomer. The promise that Jesus will not blot your name out of the book of life is a beautiful promise that should drive you to greater holiness, not greater laxity. He's a good God. May we live like that's true. Pray with me.